Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go again. This is Troy Hollings with the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. This is episode two of Basic Economics by Dr. Thomas Sowell. Episode one, we introduced the concept of what is economics, what the fuck are prices. It was crazy. I just had to go clean myself because I got covered in vomit, but the good kind. And it's back again. Right into it. Small talk done. Go. Supply and demand. There's probably no more basic or obvious principle of economics than the fact that people tend to buy more at a lower price and less at a higher price. By the same token, people who produce goods tend to supply more at a higher price and less at a lower price. Duh. If shit's cheap, I buy more. If it's expensive, I don't. If I'm selling stuff on the marketplace on Facebook, I want to sell it for a million dollars. And I really, really want to sell it for a lot. Yet, the implications of these two simple principles, singly or in combination, cover a remarkable range of economic activities and issues. And contained in all this is a shitload of misconceptions and fallacies. So the simple fact that I will buy more ammo at a lower price and that people who sell ammo will invest and produce more ammo at a higher price. That simple ass shit is actually really profound, Dr. Soul says. Demand versus need. So there's no fixed demand. Supply and demand. You know, people try to like quantify a country's need for this or that, but they ignore the fact that there's no fixed demand. There's no fixed need. I got a great example. Uh, I have a, I, I was going to say good friend, but I hate him now. I have a friend, still I guess call it qualifies as friend, who is dating an enterprising lady who is always cold. And she was relaying to me that uh, at a past apartment, the rent included utilities. And she kept the apartment at fucking 80 degrees year-round 80 degrees can you believe that but when she moved into her own apartment and she had to pay her own utilities uh yeah there was a sharp drop off in consumption so what was her need for heat didn't exist it was a there's no fixed demand likewise there's no fixed supply let's look at oil there's some places that, that getting oil is super cheap you know it's just pooping out of the ground you just put it in a cup and you go sell it at that at that area you know you can make money if the price of oil is twenty dollars a barrel you you probably lose money only if the price of oil is like a a dollar you know because like what's a cup cost but there's other places though where you know you've got to hire a bunch of pygmies to go digging around in the dirt until you find oil i don't really know how that works but uh but you can't make money until oil price is like $60 a barrel. And so it's the same thing. What's the what's the supply? What's the fixed need of oil? There's none. It's based on prices. And the principle 
is that with goods and goods in general, the quantity supplied varies directly with the price, just as the quantity demanded varies inversely with the price. So the redneck translation is that if if suppliers can sell shit for a lot of smackers, they make a lot of them. If people can buy shit for really cheap, they buy a lot. Competition comes into here though. Crucial in explaining why prices usually cannot be maintained at artificially set levels is competition. It not only forces prices towards equality, it likewise causes capital, labor, and other resources to flow towards where their rates of return are highest. That is where unsatisfied demand is highest, just like water seeking its own level. However, the fact that water seeks its own level does not mean that the ocean has a glass smooth surface, waves and tides and sharks and shit. Similarly, in an economy, the fact that prices and rates of return on investment tend to equalize means only that their fluctuations relative to one another are what moves resources from places where earnings are lower to places where earnings are higher. That is, the quantity supplied goes to the greatest relative quantity demanded. So, if a bunch of enterprising egg farmers decide that they're going to they're going to buy some farms right on the fucking line of Bougieville. As the previous example on uh, episode one, I have an oversupply of eggs. They're so cheap, we sometimes even throw them away compared to my aunt lives in Bougieville where farm fresh eggs are so expensive. Once that supply of eggs gets introduced into the market, you know, to, to, to the place where you can make the most money, to the place with the highest demand, eventually it settles out into like a level like the ocean but the whole damn metaphor dr soul is doing is that you know the ocean has waves and shit prices not only ration existing supplies they also act as a powerful incentive to cause supplies to rise or fall in response to changing demand so when a crop failure in a given region creates a sudden increase in demand for imports of food to that region food suppliers from elsewhere rush to be the first to get there in order to capitalize on the high prices that will prevail until more supplies arrive and drive food prices back down again through competition so that's fucking crazy profound so what's that saying is when there's when there's like i I, I, we don't have any food that's a huge demand for food and then food suppliers from elsewhere like huge demand (laughs) sounds like money and so the food suppliers from elsewhere was like they rush in so fucking fast to capitalize on the high prices to try to, you know, make some money. But they got food, dog. From the standpoint of the hungry people in the region, that food is being rushed to them at maximum speed by, quote, greedy suppliers, but probably so much faster than if that same food were being transported by salaried government employees sent on a humanitarian mission. Those spurred on by a desire to earn top dollar for the food they sell may well drive through the night or take shortcuts over rough terrain, while those operating in public interest are more likely to proceed at a less hectic pace. In short, people tend to do more for their own benefit than for others. So, 
But they basically saying it's like Balto, you know, that dog that did, that did the snow thing and delivered the medicine. Yay, Balto. Like, that's cool. But what he's really saying is that, you know, the with capitalism, the possibility to make profits causes some enterprising man or lady to mortgage their house, buy 20 Baltos, and then sell that medicine at whatever the market price is, which is probably pretty high if you're going to have to brave a damn snowstorm to go deliver it. In the case of the food supplies, earlier arrival can be the dif- difference between temporary hunger and death by starvation. That is so fucking crazy. Imagine that you run a company that sells winter coats. Okay, let's say your winter coat typically costs 200 bucks. All of a sudden you hear about a Swiss, so Switzerland, I think, Swiss, a Swiss village that just had a giant fire and 20,000 of their people lost everything, including their clothes somehow. And they're just on the streets. You call your employees at 5 p.m. on a Friday. You raise your hands above your head and command your employees, men and women, tonight we do something you'll remember for the rest of your lives. We save a village and all ensure our fortunes for life. Because you ran the numbers, you can sell your coat, which typically sells for $200. You can sell it for $700. And this Swiss village, yeah, it's a bunch of rich ski bums. So you drive through the night, you hire dog sled teams, you mobilize your whole company, the janitor kills somebody. At 5 a.m., you set up 300 temporary stands and you sell all your coats in an hour. You make 15 trips over the next week until you're A, rich as hell, and B, everybody has coats again. But if you think about the end result to the consumer, you know, these people rich as fuck and they, they all had $400,000 insurance checks for, you know, $700 for a coat is a small amount of money to make sure that they don't, you know, they don't all have to fucking huddle, you know, 20,000 people in the hotel getting COVID. They can at least put on a coat and go outside and just, and think how quickly you got to them compared to, you know, some government rescue mission but you can see and what dr thomas what dr soul is pointing out is you can see how this doesn't quite line up with greedy coat company takes advantage of swiss people after fire no chocolate involved but the cool thing is it works the exact opposite way too in other situations consumers may not want more but want less prices also convey this So when automobiles started displacing horses and buggies, the demand for saddles, horseshoes, carriages, all that other bullshit, it declined. As manufacturers of such products faced losses instead of profits, many began to abandon their business or or were forced to shut down. I would guess a lot of them, if they were smart, transitioned into the car business. That's an easy transition. In a sense, It is unfair when some people are unable to earn as much as others with similar levels of skill and diligence because innovations which were as unforeseen by most of the producers who benefited as by most of the producers who were made worse off. But yes, this unfairness to particular individuals and businesses exists, but 
it is what makes the economy as a whole operate more efficiently for the for the benefit of a vastly larger number of people would creating more fairness among producers at the cost of reduced efficiency and a lower standard of living be fair to consumers so you know do you prop up the dying horse and buggy industry like if crypto is true the banking industry is going to be as displaced as the horse and buggy industry so do you prop up the dying horse and buggy industry just because these are good people and then get totally left behind when cars or crypto come around i don't know unmet needs so we're talking about supply and demand unmet needs one of the most common misconceptions of economics involves unmet needs. Politicians, journalistic and academicians, whatever the hell that word means, are almost continuously pointing out unmet needs in our society that should be supplied by some government program or another. What's wrong with that, he says? If economics is the study of the use of scarce resources with alternative uses, then it follows that there will always be unmet needs. Some particular desires can be singled out and met 100%, but that only means other desires will be even more unfulfilled than they are now. So let's look at parking in downtown. So it is possible that we can build a city in a way that, that anyone can have a parking space anywhere, at any hour, day or night, but does it does that mean we should do that? What else are we prepared to give up? Do we give up hospitals? Do we give up police? Do we give up fire departments? But the point here, he says, is, is merely demonstrating an unmet need is not sufficient to say that that need should be met. Not when resources are scarce and have alternative uses. And see, this is so fucking obvious if you are in a business because it's like, Damn, man, I really need a, a sit-down standing desk. I do. I need it. But I also need a bunch of other shit. And a sit-down standing desk, that's, that's pretty nice. But, I, you know, hey, I got to just, I got to kind of do some trade-offs. But but if I was selling that in the government, I'd be like, oh, this poor guy, he's got herniated discs in his back. Do you want him to suffer? Look at his sad little face. And I, I would just forget that there's alternative uses of the money taken to give me a free fucking sit down standing desk. And, and the point he's saying is, you know, none of this says, n none of this is a comment on if there should be more or less parking spaces in cities. What he's saying is that the way the issue and many others are presented makes no sense in the world of scarce resources which have alternative uses. That is a world of trade-offs, not solutions. And whatever trade-off is decided upon will still leave unmet needs. By its very nature, as a study of scarce resources which have alternative uses, economics is about trade-offs, not about needs or solutions. That may be why economists have never been as popular as politicians who promise to solve problems and meet our needs. Oh, insanity. So that was supply. So so we've kind of introduced what it, what economics is. So we've got these scarce resources. And this is just truth. Just the world is full of scarcity. All right. I got it. Eco economics is the study of, hey, well, how do we live in a world with scarcity? How do we do that best? 
talked about prices. Prices are a way that we allocate shit. And we had a, multiple examples. We had eggs, we had dildos, a bunch of crazy shit. Then we moved into supply and demand and understood that concept even further that, you know, the prices are what pull the supply and the demand. But it's basically like the prices are the connectors between these two disparate groups. And it just fucking everybody threw up. But now we've been alluding to it. Sometimes enterprising folks in the government don't really buy into the concept that the way that they're most successful at their jobs is they don't have jobs. So sometimes they go in and a lot of times it's with really good intentions and they put price controls. And so we're going to dive deep into two examples, opposite ends of the spectrum on price controls and how they get all kinds of fucked up. Nothing makes us understand the many roles of electricity in our lives like a power failure. Similarly, nothing shows more vividly the role and importance of price fluctuations in a market economy than the absence of such price fluctuations when the market is controlled. What happens when prices are not allowed to fluctuate freely according to supply and demand, but instead their fluctuations are fixed within limits set by law under various kinds of price controls? Typically, price controls are imposed in order to keep prices from rising to levels that they would reach in response to supply and demand. The political rationales vary, but there is seldom a lack of rationales whenever it becomes politically expedient to hold down some people's prices in the interest of other people whose support seems more important. So prices normally work because they rise because the amount demanded exceeds the amount supplied at existing prices. So. Let's say that, remember that Super Bowl ad, you know, vaguely pornographic, the great taste, less filling, two attractive women in bras fighting in the fountain, Super Bowl ad. Let's say that that Super Bowl commercial played and the day after, 40% more women in the United States wanted push-up bras. You know, their husbands loved it, or their husbands' friend groups, great taste, less filling, but, but really it's just like a low-key, thinly-veiled way to talk about other women, and they just feel so jealous, and they just, you know, I just want them big boobies. So 40% more demand, all of a sudden, wants push-up bras. And the current price of push-up bras is $10. But the supply isn't set up to handle 40% more demand, so the sellers of those $10 push-up bras are like, listen, ladies, these are going fast. I don't want to sell out. I'm raising the price to $15. Prices fall because the amount supplied exceeds the amount demanded at existing prices. So same example. Let's say the new price of push-up bras after that ad is $15. But let's say I over here, I run, I run I run a men's underwear company. But I'm looking at it and I'm like, great taste, less filling, great taste, less filling. And I'm like, bitch, I can make 40% more catering to them titties. So I pivot my whole company and I sell now exclusively push-up bras for $15. Hell yeah. But every single person who was willing to pay $15 for a push-up bra now has one, two even. There's no one left who wants to pay $15. 
But bitch, I still got a shitload of push-up bras. So, in order to sell my push-up bras before their last season's bras, I don't know if that exists, but we're going with it, I got to drop the price back to $10, which brings in those women who really did want them big titties, but didn't want to pay $15 for them big titties. The first is called a shortage. The second is called a surplus, but both depend on existing prices. Now, $15 influences one group differently than $10. Simple as it may seem, it is often misunderstood, sometimes with disastrous consequences. So what he's saying is that changing the price changes the demand. So if the government changes the price, we can't just assume that like you can just do easy multiplication. This price times this demand equals this. If you change the fucking price, the demand change. Price ceilings and price shortages. When there's a shortage of a product, there's not necessarily any less of it. Either absolutely or relative to the number of consumers. So after World War II, apparently there was a housing crisis. Although there was no less housing space per person than before the war, the shortage was very real and very painful at existing prices, which were kept artificially lower than they would have been because rent controlled laws had been passed. Now, we've, we've hit on rent controlled apartments a couple times, but they're important. Shut up. No offense. So let's just imagine a world where the market price of all apartments on the market were cut in half. Let's pretend a, a normal apartment costs a thousand, but the government says today and for the rest of days, the most that can be charged here is 500. How do you react? Well, if you're the buyer, how do you react when you go to the store and you see buy one, get one free? Well, you buy two of them bitches. How do you, how do you react when you go to the store and you know something you thought like, you know, I recently I bought a bottle of Jack Daniels and it was like $21, typically 27, 28, 30. So I was like, oh, Jesus Christ. Okay, well, and then I buy it. Maybe you uh, only could have afforded 500, but now you can effectively get a $1,000 apartment for 500. All these different reasons, massive shortage. On the seller side, Let's say you know you're responsible. You have paid it down a bit. You you used to be able to make four hundred dollars per month renting out that apartment, but now you have to effectively pay a hundred dollars per month just to maintain it. What are you gonna do? You're gonna abandon ship. Are you really gonna repair the drywall on the fucking Titanic? This is a crazy statistic. Nine years after the end of World War II, not a single new apartment had been built in Melbourne, Australia because of rent controlled laws making this unprofitable. That is insane, but it makes sense. Imagine, you know, you start a new job and every day you went to your job and instead of being paid, they just popped up behind you, smoked you in the testicles, gotcha, bitch. Would you, would you want to keep doing that job? Maybe you escalate to your manager. Hey, I want I want to get paid, man. I want to get paid. I got to feed my family. You're greedy. Be thankful I'm even touching your diseased nuts. They're, they're not diseased. It's just a testicular varicocele. What? That's what rent control does. 
it makes it way more attractive to the buyer and way less attractive to the seller. And since rent control didn't apply to industrial buildings, there'd be these huge vacancies of buildings, you know, commercial and industrial, in a housing shortage. But when rent control ended after World War II, the housing shortage quickly disappeared. After rents rose in a free market, and again, you know, rents are going up. You know, all the poor people are having to pay more. Oh, God damn it. But after rents rose, some childless couples, you know, living in fucking four-bedroom apartments, they were like, you know what? Let's save $2,000 per month. Let's move to a two-bedroom. You know, we both got sterilized. We, we don't want to have children. You know, some teenagers who maybe could have afforded a studio apartment when it was like, just pay me a nickel. Now they're like, you know what? I'm going to live with my parents a little bit longer. I'm going to live in the dorms, whatever. But the net result was that families looking for a place to stay found more places available now that rent controlled laws were no longer keeping such places occupied by people with less urgent requirements. In other words, the housing shortage immediately eased even before there was time for new housing to be built. So it's not even saying like, you know, you think of shortage like, oh God, man, we gotta, you know, we gotta, we gotta build more houses for these people. No, we didn't, that didn't even do that. It just changed in response to market conditions that now made it possible to recover the cost of building more housing to earn a profit. Because, you know, no new buildings had been built for nine years in Melbourne. Think about that. Like you're, you know, you're like, well, we need, we need more housing. We need more housing. But it's like, well, that'd be really cool. I'd love to go build a new housing apartment. But every time I go to work, you pop up behind me and hit me in the testicles and say, gotcha, bitch. And they get mad at me when I ask to get paid. Sorry, I'm not building it. We can see that price controls, which limit price fluctuations, reduce the incentives for individuals to limit their own use of scarce resources desired by others. In a normal course of events, people's demand for housing space changes over a lifetime. You know, their demand usually increases when they get married and have children. You know, then it reduces after the kids leave and finally everyone goes to the old folks home. In this way, a society's total stock of housing is shared and circulated amongst people according to their changing individual demands at different stages of life. This sharing takes place because of prices, dog. If I have kids, I'm willing to pay more so that each kid can have a bedroom or whatever. In short, a policy intended to make housing affordable to the poor has had the net effect of shifting resources towards the building of housing that is only affordable to the rich, since luxury housing is often exempt from rent control. Lol. Eventually, all those buildings just get abandoned because you're like, you know, after after a year of showing up to work, getting accused of getting greedy and just getting testicle punched, you're like, fuck it, I quit. And you're like, you know, you, you're quitting and you're leaving a big fucking apartment building, just, you just abandoned it. But you're like, fuck, I do my testicles, man, my testicles. But eventually all those buildings get abandoned. Crackheads move in. And though they do make good rap music, I will say they fester and cause crime. Once again, 
This demonstrates that the efficient or inefficient allocation of scarce resources is not some abstract, googly-moogly economic thought experiment, but goddamn life or death. It also illustrates that you can have really good intentions, but that doesn't matter when your fucking policy basically is just mass-producing crackheads. Another crazy side effect of these damn price controls is black markets. So, while price controls make it illegal for buyer and seller to make some transactions on terms that they both would be cool with, you know, it's not just a greedy landlord, they both would be cool with it. Some less scrupulous buyers and sellers make mutually advantageous transactions outside the law. So, price controls almost invariably produce black markets where prices are not only higher than the legally permitted prices, but also higher than they would be without price controls since the legal risks are also compensated. So, imagine, you know, market price that's required to be for this damn apartment is 500 bucks. Let's say that before that it was a thousand. That's just the, the standard average market price. Let's say there's this huge waiting list for people to, to get into this rent control department. I want in, I want in the apartment. But let's say I come up to the landlord. I'm like, hey, bitch, I know you got a waiting list, but I also know that this doesn't make you any money. So I got a deal for you. You know, I know the typical market value of this would be a thousand, okay? I know it's illegal for us to do this deal, but I don't really care either. I don't think you care because you know you're about to burn down your apartment building. I, <laughs> I see the accelerant there. You're just keeping it on hand just in case. How about I pay you 1500 bucks for this apartment and I move right to the front of the line and when anybody asks, we'll just say, no hablo inglés. And the dude's like, done. You shake hands and it's a mutually beneficial agreement, but it, there's $500 of inefficiency contained in that and it's illegal. Uh, in Russia, for example... A local embargo on the shipment of price-controlled food uh, beyond regional boundaries was dubbed the 150-ruble decree, since that was the cost of bribing police. So you'd pay the police 150 rubles, here you go, and then normal fucking capitalism could happen-ish. Um, and then I don't know why I put this in here, but I just had a note that black markets are crazy too because, you know, who sells stuff in black markets? criminals hmm so think of al capone okay he uh he shot people with machine guns over beer you ever see budweiser and, and miller light do that i mean the craziest thing that we saw was that great taste less filling ad and that was like 20 years ago and they're still cool with each other another insane side effect of these price controls it, it kind of makes sense when you think about it is quality deterioration one of the problems of price controls is defining what it is whose price is being controlled. Even something as simple as an apple is not easy to define because apples differ in size, freshness, and appearance. Supermarkets spend time, aka money, sorting out different quality apples, you know, throwing out the bad. But under price controls, however, the quantity of apples demanded at an artificially low price exceeds the amount supplied. So there's no need to, sp to spend so much time and money sorting on apples. You know, some apples that, that would ordinarily be thrown out are kept for sale. So that's insane. You can't, you can't make money anyways. And you know that double the amount that you have is demanded. So you're like, 
fuck it. Here's your worm bitten apple. And so the average quality is way worse. But the crazy thing is the principle presents itself the same in apples or rent controlled apartments or recently on Twitter. There's some guy I don't even know. He wrote this book, The Parasitic Mind. He seems kind of cool. Maybe I should read his book. But I followed him when I was trying to do this strategy of follow a lot of people and hope they follow me back. But I just got a nasty gram from Twitter. But a tenured professor. So tenured means unfireable. So like a price control saying the lowest price we can ever pay you is your salary. Oh, look, it's creating quality problems. This tenured professor was going after this guy and uh, the last, I, 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 I regret to say it, to quote it, but I'm quoting it. Um, the, the last phrase in the tweet was, gargle my balls. That's what this tenured professor at a university told someone who wrote a book on Twitter. Gargle my balls. And I commented, <laughs> I will say, and I said, ah, interesting. The price control of tenure creating quality problems. Who would have thought? And then I tagged Thomas Sowell on Twitter. So that was price ceiling. You can think about that like uh, like the ceiling of a rent-controlled apartment is rotting out. And, and that is designed to protect the consumer, as we saw, by hurting the producer. But what we basically saw is just everybody gets fucked. Everybody is not protected. So just as a price set below the level that would prevail by supply and demand tends to create more demand and less supply. A shortage, a price set above the free market level, tends to cause more to be supplied than demanded, creating a surplus. Great Depression. Among the tragedies of the Great Depression in the 1930s was the fact that many American farmers simply could not make enough money from the sale of their crops to pay their bills. Okay, so we got farmers, and you got to remember at this time, a lot of Americans were farmers. So, you know, the government probably was thinking like farmer as proxy for American. So a lot of Americans couldn't make, couldn't sell enough crops to pay their bills. So the government intervened and they put price controls to keep farm prices. So all these prices that these farmers, are, they're selling their corn for from falling so sharply. So there's a few different forms. Um, you know, they try to ration different things by law, um, you know, but they set a specific level of price that below which the government would buy it. So, so imagine that. So if normal supply and demand, you know, price would go down, price would go up, supply, demand, whatever. But with this price control, this in the effort to protect the farmer, the government said, if price goes below X, and this is the this is the price of the seller. If the price goes below X, we'll buy it from you, seller. Okay. But what ended up happening is is these effects that were as dramatic as the rent controlled apartments. The federal government ended up buying six million hogs and took them off the market to keep prices high. All the while you know, it's the biggest period of starvation in, in our country's history. Still, there was a food surplus. A surplus, like a shortage, is a price phenomenon. Okay, so it's not like an implicit in the, in the thing phenomenon, it's a price phenomenon. 
there was not too much food relative to the population of the Great Depression. The people simply did not have enough money to buy everything that was produced at the artificially high prices set by the government. So in the effort to protect farmers, you know, their shitty proxy for Americans, all the other Americans that weren't farmers, bitch, they ain't not protected at all. They actually didn't even have enough money to buy food. In the Great Depression, they had so much wheat stored that that no one could buy. You know, so this oversupply of wheat, no one could fucking buy it, that they had to fill all old warships. So like old destroyers, they had to fill it with wheat. So long as the market price of the of the produced covered by price controls stayed above the level at which the government is legally obligated to buy it, the product sold at supply and demand level. So what that's basically saying is that, you know, they put this this price floor in, but above that, you know, the market would just work like normal, theoretically. And it's like, oh, you know, it don't ever reach this floor. But the, what ends up happening is that the real losses to the country as a whole come from the misallocation of scarce resources which have alternative uses. These resources are, are needlessly used to produce more food than consumers are willing to consume. And poor people are forced to pay more than necessary to get the amount of food they receive. So let's do like a tangible, silly example. So imagine I sell blue jeans. And you know, let's say I sell them for, say I sell them for 30 bucks. On average, if I'm in a capitalistic marketplace, I'll sell out, um, you know, I'll either sell all of them at 30 or, you know, right before my next order, I, I might have like 10 left or something. Um, you know, if it's especially hot, I might have 20 pairs left over. Um, so, but I'm selling them for 30. So in the effort to get rid of my inventory before I make my next order, I drop the price to 25. Maybe if it's a crazy, super hot weather, I'll drop the price to 20. You know, so someone can come in, jeans that were normally 30 bucks, they can buy them for 20 bucks. But now, let's say the government, in the effort to protect me, the, you know, the, the retailer, let's say, say the government says, hey, the, hey, if we want to protect you, if the price of this drops any below $29, we'll buy them. So all the normal people buy the jeans at 30, but when I have, you know, a couple pairs, 20 pairs left where I would typically drop the price to 25 bucks and, you know, eke out some profit and sell them and then drop the price to 20 bucks and someone gets a good deal. Ooh, hey, whatever. I now sell, as soon as it drops to 29, sell all those excess pairs to the government, but I'm smart. Next time I order way more jeans. And I still sell some for 30, but now I have 60 pairs left over when I typically would have, you know, 10 or 20, but I dropped the price to $29 and the government buys the, buys these from me and I'm making bank. But think of all those people who would have bought the jeans at 20 or 25 and now they're showing dick. You know, they can't afford to buy jeans. They got holes in their holes. Now imagine if that was every type of food. The farmers are happy because they are oversupplying and selling that shit to the government. But the people who want to buy food, you know, at the metaphorical $25 for a pair of jeans, they can't get food. All the while, there's fucking warehouses of jeans, you know, warehouses of rotting food. 
And Dr. Soul says that a lot of times this shit comes about because of politics. You know, certain people actually do win. If I buy an apartment at half price and I never get evicted, I don't really fucking care about this damn grand plan or the whole economy. The greater the difference between free market prices and price control laws, the greater the consequences. Zimbabwe had crazy inflation and and the government ordered all sellers to cut prices in half. New York Times said Zimbabwe's economy was at a halt. Everything was gone. The mob descended like locusts. Gasoline was nearly unobtainable. Power blackouts and water cutoffs are everywhere. The thing is, initially, the public loved the idea of price controls. But this is important. You know, it's 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 the fact that that emotional feeling, oh, oh, politics, that isn't always the truth. When a local area is devastated by a hurricane or some other natural disaster, many people consider it unconscionable if businesses raise prices on such things like bottled water, flashlights, or gasoline. The political response has been to pass laws against price gouging. And we saw this in COVID 2020. There's a there's a hand sanitizer guy who fucking enterprising entrepreneur, I will say, he bought like, I don't know, twenty thousand things of hand sanitizer and was trying to sell them at twenty bucks a pop when previously the price was five. And everybody was like, ah, that's illegal. And he got like publicly shamed. Everybody on Reddit fucking hated him. I'm sorry, dog. He's just trying to make a little money. And if I have to pay 20 bucks for one thing of hand sanitizer, I'll probably buy two and then I'll have enough hand sanitizer, but I'm not going to buy 30 things of hand sanitizer like I did. Yet, the role of prices in allocating scarce resources is even more urgently needed when local resources have suddenly become more scarce than usual. If the prices of bottled water remain the same, those who happen to get there first will just take all the water. But if prices sharply rise, people will have incentives to ration themselves. So think about buying water at a metal concert. You know, it's like fucking $10. So I always take a bottle, like a Nalgene bottle. Last time, mysteriously, I actually somehow broke my Nalgene, which I didn't didn't think was possible. But my memory is a little hazy on that event. So I don't know. But um, if you buy a bottle of water, it's like 10 bucks. So the average person, they buy enough to not fucking die. But, uh, you know, imagine that there was some price control that like, you know, we got water's the human right, which like it's true. But like you, you can drink out of the fucking sink, bitch. Um, imagine the minimum or the maximum that you can charge for waters is, is a dollar. I'd buy 20 waters. Plus, if I sell water. You know, I can divert a bunch of supplies to the area and make buku bucks while also helping people. You know, there's a hurricane, Hurricane Ida, whatever. If I'm Dasani from the the three contiguous surrounding states, I'm going to rush in fucking water. And I'm going to charge, I don't know, if water's typically five bucks, I might charge eight bucks. But for, you know, for for those 50,000 orders or whatever that I make, Instead of my typical 5% margins, I make 25% margins. But everybody has water and nobody has too much water because they're a greedy asshole. But if I'm FEMA, you know, if I'm the, the government re- reaction force, 
I'm not going to rush. I'm not going to drive overnight. I'm not going to, you know, pull an all-nighter. And like, I'm not saying those people don't work hard. Like they truly probably seriously do. But like, you know, it's a little bit different to risk your own life journeying to the top of Mount Everest versus like doing that for someone else. You know, perfect example, like the hand sanitizer in 2020, we had the great toilet paper shortage. And what ended up happening was there's all these people who, as soon as the, the pandemic came about, you know, it's these people that, that truly probably do have the demand for being a prepper, but they just are stupid and have never done any thinking about being a prepper. And they're like, oh, fuck. Oh, God, what if I can't wipe my ass? And so there were shocking pictures of people going to Costco and getting two or three trays, no, two or three big carts of toilet paper, clearing it out, clearing out a Costco of toilet paper. But if you think about it, the businesses, they kind of politically capitulated to the masses again because it would have looked politically bad for companies, you know, you know, a toilet paper company at the, at the fucking beginning of a pandemic a toilet paper company to raise the price of toilet paper you know to five rolls is 25 dollars something like that you know if if toilet if toilet paper was seriously 25 dollars for five rolls which i don't want it to be that i want it to be free it's a human right but do you think anybody's gonna hoard it no they're gonna buy you know, if they got a family, they're gonna be like, God damn, we're gonna have to pinch. You know, they're not actually gonna not go out to eat that week, and they're gonna buy fifty dollars worth of toilet paper, but they're gonna, you know, make sacrifices. They're gonna buy two, and that person that was gonna hoard it was like, damn it, and then they like Google how to be a prepper and do it better. But we all got pissed on social media, and we're like, no price gouging, no price gouging. You know, how are these sweet old ladies who need to wipe their butts? How how are they gonna wipe their butts? So we, we kept prices low, shortage kicked in, and we had to resort to rationing, you know, a communist tactic, the average store saying, you know, only buy one thing of toilet paper instead of just fucking prices because everybody's an idiot and we use Twitter and flash mob techniques to enforce socialist policies. Well, holy shit, heifers. It still goes. It's going supply demand prices hell fire gold insanity on the next episode of this here curiously disagreeable podcast we're gonna get a deeper overview on prices i know it feels like we've got the deepest but it's insane he's going even deeper harder wider naked mole rat digging into the earth we're gonna touch on industry commerce like what the fuck is this whole like okay cool i get prices but like what are businesses like i feel like amazon they're probably an evil empire right maybe not i don't know and then we're gonna we're gonna close out with um the government you know we've been kind of hating on the government are there good parts but if you want to learn that and more and everything you need to know to become rich jacked and a god among men You'll have to tune in next time on the next episode of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that, my pretties, is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Check us out at CuriouslyDisagreeable.com, the Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end.